Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Grishma Gauda, a PhD student in fluid mechanics at Vreya Universiteit Brussels. I have a returning co-host for today, which is Thomas Lebbe, a PhD candidate in macroeconomics with a passion for history. So my first question is always the same. Uh, I ask for a fun fact or a joke or a science uh, anecdote. Um, this is for both of you. So I will start with Grishma. Do you have something for us? Yeah, um, so this is uh, something that kind of helped me come to terms with my contribution or like, you know, to, towards my topic or so, and uh, towards well, science in general. Uh, sometimes it's easy to feel like you're not really doing enough to make to the make world a, a better place or whatever. Yeah. So uh, apparently during the First World War, Einstein decided to use his, use his intellect to uh, you know, to to come up with an explanation for aerodynamic lift. I'm an aerodynamicist, so this is something that I found very interesting. So he wanted to to do something uh, in terms of aerodynamics, aerodynamic lift, and he wrote a paper in 1916 and he published it. And he used uh, Bernoulli's principle and equal transit time theory to uh, propose a wing design called cat's back airfoil. So it was basically an air, airfoil with a, a really big hump on on the upper surface of the of the of the airfoil. Uh, it looks very strange if you look it up on the internet. And um, actually, a German aeronautical company it tested a prototype of this wing, and in a wind tunnel, and they found that the results were really disappointing, and the lift to dark ratio was really low. So it was. Not very, yeah, not not a very good airfoil. But the head of the facility, who just wanted to to manufacture it and he wanted to try it anyway, is called Paul George Earnhardt, and he actually uh, used uh, used the airfoil design to manufacture wings and and they put it on an airplane. However, the plane could barely take off of the ground, and it apparently almost killed the pilot. <laughs> And Einstein wrote to the pilot apologizing, yeah, this is what can happen to a man who thinks a lot, but reads very little. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. yeah, like even somebody as smart and talented as Einstein can write a paper, which is for all intents and purposes, useless. <laughs> so you can draw some comfort in this, I think. Yeah, we don't have to feel bad when we make a mistake. Even Einstein makes yeah. mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, indeed. That's uh, that's something that that helped me sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's actually a, yeah. a good thing to put your life into perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> okay, and Thomas, do you have something as well? Yes, and uh, coincidentally, it's also about mistakes and uh, the punishment of mistakes. Uh, I'm a teaching assistant at uh, Ghent University, and a few years ago, we decided to change the rules about multiple choice exams. Um, the old system was that there was a penalty if you guessed. So basically, it was uh, the expected value of guessing was zero. So you were not really penalized in a sense, but you didn't get any rewards for it. So you would just get a zero score and not a negative score. But what we have found is psychologic research has shown that boys tend to guess more than girls. And uh, girls would just tend to leave the questions open. But there's still a one in four chance that your uh, guess is positive. So it was uh, skewing the in favor of boys instead of girls. And this was the real reason why we have switched off this uh, multiple choice with penalties towards, uh, let's say, a higher threshold for passing a multiple choice test. 
I think this is something that people don't really know why. And so this is my factoid. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oops. Yeah. Very interesting to see the, the difference between genders. Yeah. Yeah. Risk perception is, is very different. Yeah. And I think we we also see this in everyday life. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I certainly observe it in, in yeah. like just making decisions uh, at work or outside life. It's quite interesting. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and just for listeners that don't know, the, the previous penalty, I think it was when you get it right, you get plus two. And when you get it wrong, minus one. Or is it plus one and minus one? So basically, it depends on how many uh, possibilities there are. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And then uh, basically, it's if it's plus one, then I think it's minus one third if there's th three possibilities, one minus one fourth yeah. if there's four possibilities, etc. Makes sense. Yeah. And now it's like you have to get. There's no penalty when you get it wrong, but you have to get like sixty percent to pass or something. Yes, that's correct. Sixty yeah. percent gets rescaled into um, to fifty. Let's say. Yeah. Okay. So I actually. Yeah. So as you know, or might know, um, my focus is on uh, functioning of plants and stuff. And I was wondering, do you actually know how you can recognize uh, a dogwood tree by its bark? Oh, God. Oh, no, this, is, this is horrible. This is... Yeah, I know. I know. It's a horrible joke. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, Grishma, yeah. you work in fluid mechanics, uh, yeah. but what do we have to envision when we heard the word or the term fluid mechanics? What does that mean exactly? Well, fluid mechanics, it's a broad uh, field, right? So fluid mechanics is basically how uh, any kind of flu fluid uh, flows and, and you study how it flows and what are the things that are affecting its flow. Uh, what I do is aerodynamics, so it's just it's a part of it. Uh, Fluids are all the same, but different viscosities and a little different behaviors. Right? So uh, I am an aerodynamicist. So I study um, how air flows in and around, mostly around bodies like aerofoils, air, wings of uh, aircraft, cars, uh, wind turbines, and, and, and yeah, other, uh, other bodies. External aerodynamics is my focus and uh, mainly wind turbine aerodynamics because uh, I shifted my focus towards uh, wind energy a few years ago. So I study how air flows around a wind turbine blade. Yeah, because fluids, I think the general people, when they hear fluids, they think of liquids, but it's not yeah, only, yeah. only liquids, it's all yeah. gases and stuff. Also yeah. gases. Yeah. yeah, air. Okay. Air is a fluid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You already uh, illustrated this a little. So you work on uh, wind turbines. And yeah. what, what do you exactly, what do you study on wind turbines? Uh, so my field of study is uh, vertical axis wind turbine aerodynamics. Uh, so if you already know what a wind turbine is, you would you would be familiar with this idea of like a big mast and a fan on top um, that you see everywhere. Those are horizontal axis wind turbines because their axis of rotation is is horizontal to the ground. And uh, the the wind turbines I study they are not very mainstream yet at the moment uh, they are vertical axis wind turbines it's like uh, they have a vertical axis and then they rotate around the axis uh, something like you have a cylinder rotating around its uh, uh, central axis uh, that's that those are the turbines that i study and uh, specifically my topic is uh, to study 
this process of synchronization uh, that a couple of uh, researchers have observed in, in at the VUB, in our research group at the VUB, and also in another research group uh, in Japan. Uh, so the synchronization is basically um, a new a new process uh, that we don't know what it's why exactly it is happening and we don't know how it would affect the power production of the wind turbine uh, so my job is to understand why it's happening uh, what do you actually mean with synchronization what does that mean yeah yeah i'll tell you so um so in, in, in the system that I am studying, we have two vertical axis wind turbine rotors put right next to each other. There is a small gap between them and uh, we rotate them using a generator uh, in, in, in a lab condition. That's how you do uh, experiments. You have to give power to move things uh, because we don't have wind uh, um, as it would be in real life. Uh, so uh, when we rotate one of these uh, rotors at uh, say 1200 rotations per minute, and then uh, the other one also at 1200 rotations per minute, and at some point, if I change the one of the rotors speed to 1220, the other rotor automatically moves to 1220 instead of just, yeah, rotating at its uh, original speed. Um, and we also noticed that since they are at two different speeds, they shouldn't cross the center line at the same position of their blades, but they do. So something is happening uh, there, which makes the other rotor speed up to catch up with the rotor that we are messing with. And we don't, yeah, there are some theories, uh, but we don't exactly know what's happening. So I'm trying to understand why this is happening. Uh, and we realized, uh, uh, the, in the last year or so that it, it's not really because there is something wrong with the experiment because that is, that can always happen because sometimes the vibrations can uh, can mess around with your data that you acquire but it's not what's happening because we can see the exact same phenomena in simulations as well uh, so i'm hoping to understand that i'm still working on it <laughs> I was a bit flabbergasted also about these vertical ones. Uh, I wonder, is it always two uh, pillars next to each other or is it just a specific configuration? It's, it's one specific configuration that you, uh, so but, but that's what I work on two together. Uh, but there are different configurations. The default configuration is, is uh, just one rotor on one mast. Uh, and uh, th there are also these paired rotor configurations that you, uh, you mentioned. That is what I work on. And uh, this was uh, because a, a research group found out that when they are closer together, they produce more power. Um, and uh, they were also studying how uh, like what is an efficient way to put multiple rotors together, like for example, side by side, one behind the other, like staggered configuration. And there was a very interesting paper where they used uh, a fish schooling, um, like how fish group together uh, to get an idea of uh, how to put the wind turbines. Um, it's a very complicated uh, explanation for it, but it's very interesting to, to read. So this, there are multiple configurations, and, and this is just one particular one that I am working on. I'm also thinking about the lab conditions, because basically, if I have it correct, basically these vertical uh, rotors, there's, they're two next to each other, right? And then mm -hmm. they rotate, 
And yeah. purely because of your condition, you have a synchronization. If you change only one of them, then the other automatically yeah. adopts the effect. And yeah. but immediately, I also think if you change the rotor, doesn't this is also impact basically the airflow around it? Because you change the airflow, yeah. and because yeah. of course the rotors are both from uh, making but also receiving it. For me, intuitively, if you're in a confined surrounding, this would make it automatically so in a sense. So can you also? Yeah. Have you also trusted this outside where basically the vessel is infinite in a certain sense? This, yeah, real life testing has not been done because, yeah, first of all, it's uh, it's hard to test outside wind tunnels. Um, we, you would have to uh, do a field testing and for that the scale of the rotors uh, is different than the one you, we use in wind tunnels. Um, but that is the whole idea, like the the airflow that changes when one of the rotors is rotating faster is affecting the other one but we don't know how because it's not it's not something we expect we expect that there will be changes in the airflow and this already uh, results in an improved power uh, efficiency the changes in the flow when you put them both close together uh, already improves things however this this uh, little thing that is happening this uh, synchronization we don't know why this is happening because uh, there, there is certainly changes in airflow but why should the air turning around uh, the the first rotor pull the other rotor much faster there should be an extra force that's uh, pulling the other rotor right because otherwise we wouldn't see yeah, it's speeding up, but we we don't know about this uh, additional force, and that's what we are looking into, because it needs it needs some kind of an external driver to speed up. Does it also work if you, for example, only start rotating one and the other one is standing still when you start? Yeah, no, I don't think we have, we haven't tested it, but I would not think it would work. Mainly because uh, one of the problems with uh, vertical axis wind turbines are they have a, a, a starting problem that they need to need to be jump started. Uh, but there are also there is also a lot of research going on on how to yeah eliminate this problem. But... And these wind turbines, these vertical wind turbines, how, how large are they? Can you, for example, put one on your roof? Yeah, indeed. Uh, so um, basically. The, the scale of these uh, wind turbines, vertical axis wind turbines, it, they vary a lot. Um, I think the smallest ones can be like one meter or two meters. So you can put them on top of your house. Uh, but the largest ones are also like 100 meters tall. And yeah, so you can actually buy a, a small vertical axis wind turbine in multiple designs actually off of the internet. Uh, I think they cost like a few hundred euros, uh, so you can put them on your house and in your lawn. You can also build one. I have seen many uh, instruction blogs and videos on how to build. So if you're handy and you have, uh, uh, you know, a couple of days, you can build one as your hobby project. <laughs> they won't produce a lot of power, but it will be fun, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to be a bit critical. Um... Why should we care about vertical uh, wind turbines if we already have all the other types of wind turbines that are everywhere? Uh, what's the added value, the advantage? When you choose a technology in real life, most of the times you're also trading one set of compromises to another different set of compromises, right? Um, 
So these vertical axis rotors, they have their own positive uh, attributes. Uh, they are uh, easier to maintain because they have a gearbox at the bottom instead of at the top, like a horizontal axis wind turbine. And uh, they also, uh, they can function uh, with, with a lower wind velocity and they produce less noise and uh, they can be put in terrains, some, some terrains which are not ideal for, for horizontal axis wind turbines. Uh, and another big uh, advantage is uh, we have this effect. Uh, we have this problem called wake effects. Uh, when you have two horizontal axis wind turbines close to each other, what happens is the airflow from uh, the first the first turbine, when it hits the second turbine, if it if the second turbine is too close to the first turbine, the power production can be negatively affected because uh, of the, the the characteristics of of, of the wake or of the first turbine. So what we do in, in horizontal axis wind farms is that we put them far apart. If you have seen it, it's, they are really far from each other. So ideally, if you have a vertical axis wind turbine, you would not need this much space between them. Because what we are seeing now is that instead of hindering uh, the power production uh, when they are close together, it actually helps them produce more power. There are a few papers on, on studying how uh, it, it how to stagger them in a way that they can produce more power when they're closer together. So this could be an advantage um, as well over the horizontal axis wind turbines. I'm not saying they will replace them, but they, they certainly have their own advantages. And uh, for me, uh, they are very interesting because of their aerodynamics. They are much more complicated than uh, horizontal axis wind turbines in terms of uh, yeah just the the physics that goes on around them. Um, that's something I find fascinating, but it's, it doesn't have real world application. The the fascination, but yeah, it has to be fun for you as well, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed, <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay, um, so but you said they turn when there's a lower wind speed, but they also have like a a starting point they have to reach. So yeah. are they actually more efficient or less efficient than the horizontal wind turbines? They are less efficient. As in, when you compare a horizontal axis turbine and a vertical axis turbine as, as individual rotors, they are less efficient, uh, mainly because they are uh, working uh, with unsteady aerodynamics, which uh, makes the, the airfoils in the blades enter this uh, process called stall, uh, where they produce less lift, so less power. However, yeah, they 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 have their advantages, like I mentioned, uh, and there is a lot of work going on uh, as to how we can improve the efficiency of these. Horizontal axis turbines have had like decades of research behind them. We have improved them so much over the past 50 years or so that hopefully if we put that much effort into vertical axis wind turbines, they can also be in the same place. But uh, yeah, time will tell, I think. Also, I think uh, then this is basically efficiency in terms of one unit of a wind turbine. But you could also think with your remark that you said about the efficiency per square kilometers. And because you can stack them together and you said you have efficiency gains, maybe, I, I mean, land is scarce and we'll never get more land. So this is also another way to look at the problem, I assume. Yeah. Indeed. Uh, yeah, because um, there are some studies which show like a whole factor of uh, improvement in power uh, density of a vertical axis wind farm compared to a horizontal axis 
farm. So that's a that's a really big improvement if we can translate that to real world circumstances. Are there actually like large vertical wind farms? Uh, no, just uh, the this, this, the data comes from uh, a farm, like uh, an experimental study that they did in yeah in a in an experimental environment outside, of course. Uh, but yeah, we don't have that many real world applications for about yet. However, there are a few uh, companies which are working on it, uh, and I think uh, there is one called Agile Wind in Germany, which uh, um, which is testing a land uh, well onshore um, turbine, which was 105 meters tall with 32 diameter, meter diameter or something. And then there is also another company in Norway, which has uh, working, it's it's been seven years since they installed a, 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 an offshore turbine uh, that they have they've used for testing, and they plan to they plan to yeah build larger ones. I think uh, if I'm right, uh, they're going to build a two megawatt one. I I heard or one megawatt one. I'm not yeah. I I, I don't remember exactly, but a large turbine. So do you think that that is the future actually to have like large wind farms with vertical wind turbines? Optimistically speaking, yes, I, I would love to see that. And I also think it's not a bad idea because uh, we have a lot of advantages on our side and uh, um, people are working on it and it takes less space and we can fit more in. So why not? Um, and also, yeah, None of the countries in the EU or anywhere else have reached not even half their uh, goal for yeah for renewable energy. So this might this might help because they are easier to install and to maintain and cheaper in terms of yeah manufacturing. So it could be a solution, <laughs> but we still need a lot of a uh, lot of research and. Uh, improvements in it, of course, before we yeah go on building building them because we don't want to be yeah we don't want to <laughs> waste the resources. One of the problems we always have with renewable energy is it's time dependent. Uh, so, is there a way we can store that energy in some way? Like I know they have large batteries, but is, is that the way to go? Uh, yeah. So. Again, I have to tell you that it's, it's again not not something that I am well versed in, but I do know a few ways. So we have these electrical and lead acid batteries that are used for yeah, like in general purposes. Uh, so they are the most used uh, power storage uh, mechanisms. But we also have um, new technologies that are coming up, uh, and also some like hydrogen cells. Uh, where they use the energy produced by the wind turbines to to produce hydrogen from water and they store the hydrogen carefully. Well, th that, that again is a big process, but this is what uh, is quite popular now, hydrogen as a power storage uh, system. And I've heard a lot about it uh, in the conferences I've been as well. So this is one of the things that we can see in the future. But I also know that there are uh, ways to compress air using the excess power and then store that air uh, and use it later to drive turbines. 
uh, to to produce energy. And I think like last year or so, there was another really innovative uh, solution for this, where they would use. I think it was a Dutch company, if I'm uh, if I'm remembering right. They proposed an idea where they would use this extra energy to to pump water into these uh, flexible elastic bladders, which lay on which lie on the on the bed of the sea, and then they would uh, use this pressurized water later to to run turbines, different kind of turbines, <laughs> to produce electricity later. Uh, um, but that was yeah, that was very interesting. Um, I think there are a lot of yeah innovative solutions um, out there, and um, yeah, how effective they are is yet to be seen, but there certainly are options. And uh, also think that people who work in research and also industries are realizing that they need to invest more in, in grid infrastructure to efficiently use the energy that we are producing. Um, working on, on that would certainly improve, <laughs> improve the situation. Well, that also made me think of something I heard a few years ago where they, one of the ideas was to construct like a ring island and uh, when they have available energy, they pump up the water within the ring. And when they mm -hmm. have a shortage, they let it out again. And that drives uh, yeah. a turbine. And then yeah, you always yeah. lose energy in the conversion, but yeah. it's a way of storing yeah. some of the energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I think it's, it's also like the idea of compressed water. Yeah. I, I've heard the same thing similar, uh, but then for countries who don't have many uh, elevations, like Jeroen's, your idea was basically you need an ocean uh, because you need to make the ring in the ocean. Uh, Belgium is quite flat, so that's also not an option to build a dam. Uh, you know, you always have to look at the geology. But I found another one, and this was basically someone said, okay, we just um, drill a hole and go very, very deep, and we do reverse dam in a sense. Yeah. Can you explain that? Well, basically... Um, you just need elevation between two different levels. So it doesn't matter if you uh, build a drill a hole and make like a reservoir deep into the ground or have uh, something high up. Mm. The idea is still the same. You just have the change of elevation. So okay. uh, for countries yeah. like Belgium, this could be a potential uh, solution, which is a very smart way to think about something that has yeah, seemed complex, but really isn't. Yeah, pressure difference. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, in energy, we also talk a lot about modularity uh, because, uh, you know, demands shift. Uh, people, especially in more developing countries, uh, need to have like small uh, modules and then not per se stay at the same place. Uh, we know that in the nuclear sciences, we have these modular uh, small reactors that can be put onto a truck and then moved around. Uh, is there any possibility for these windmills to also be, you know, because you said it was quite easy engineering, the gearbox was at the bottom. It seems the perfect fit for a modular. Uh... I've never really thought about the modularity of these turbines, to be completely honest. But it could be done, I think, because they are considerably easy to, to install and yeah and to maintain however i'm not sure if the energy produced by such small turbines would be enough for real purposes like yeah to light light things maybe to turn on the lamp lights it would be enough but yeah to run a tv or something i doubt if a small turbine would would be enough uh, this also yeah this also brings another thing uh, to my mind so um 
some of my uh, friends from uh, TU Delft, they uh, work for this company called Kite Power. And when I was um, doing my master's there, uh, my research group also consisted a lot of people from Kite Power. Uh, if you if you can, you should look it up. So basically, they are using kites to to use to harness wind energy. It's a pretty cool concept, and and I think there are also a few bigger companies, including uh, a, a, a part of Google that is actually working on on kite power. Um, so that's uh, that's very very portable. Like you can bring it anywhere and and use it. However, yeah, it's not yet mainstream but it's an interesting concept and my head that's really funny i just see like a man with or a woman with a kite and that's like what, what, how, yeah, that's, how do that's... you get energy from that so you you fly the kite and then the wind pulls the kite away yeah. and you have like a a, a, a pulley yeah. and so, system. Uh, yeah the pull yeah but okay, this is a few cool. years ago already so i'm not sure about the progress they have made since then but it's a very interesting concept nevertheless it's yeah <laughs> And actually, one of the rumors I heard a few years ago, so I don't know if it's true, but like for wind turbines, I heard that they need to rare metals. Is that true, actually? Are we like depleting some kind of metals for producing these wind turbines or is that just a rumor? Um, so the, the blades of wind turbines, they are made from fiberglass, reinforced polyester or epoxy. And uh, carbon fiber or Kevlar are used as the support structures inside the blades. And I think recently they are also using wood components for this. Uh, and the ma masts are made from like steel or, or concrete. So I am not sure um, if there are rare metals being used, but maybe in, in the gear system or energy transmission uh, system, but that would be the case for any other energy resource as well and another thing is uh, a lot of companies are working on making uh, use of the the blades as well uh, because that was a big uh, thing about like okay at the end of uh, the life cycle of wind turbine the blades just kind of go to landfill and that was true a few years ago but now they are working on like recyclable blade designs there are some companies which are kind of crushing the blade and using uh, the, the epoxy to, to make other things. And uh, it, I also have seen in, in, in Rotterdam, uh, they have made like public benches uh, with wind turbine blades. So that's pretty cool. I saw it last time I was there and I was quite impressed. Uh, it's there, you're trying to use it in one way or the other. So hopefully in a few years, the, the carbon footprint will decrease even further. And as you know, we, we have an extensive uh, energy crisis right now. Uh, do these wind turbines, can, can they help with this energy crisis or is it like a drop in a bucket? So wind is it's it's a local energy resource right so for for a lot of countries in the world so ideally it 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 helps because you don't have to buy energy from anywhere else and it's right there and you're just using it and it's also not 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 making a bigger impact on uh, on your environment and atmosphere it has the capacity certainly to help i think uh, I think at the end of 2021, uh, it was estimated that like around 16 to 17% of uh, Europe's electricity demand is being met by uh, renewables and especially wind. 
um, and I think Denmark has close to 50% of its energy needs be met by wind energy and Ireland is around 40%. So like I mentioned earlier, we haven't, like the EU has not managed to, to reach even half its goal of wind turbines and we're already at 16, 17%. So if we can manage to reach the goals, I think it certainly can put a big dent in the crisis. But we have to we have to get there, and so with with the right policies and, and right actions, I'm sure we can help the crisis. <laughs> we know already that it's not futile, right? right? Because 16 percent is a large chunk. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have to disagree completely. Whatever uh, I've heard right now, uh, I I right. work on energy and uh, and macroeconomic policy around it, and and basically right. it is the least efficient. Uh, energy producer that determines the price. And so only right. when the wind turbine is, in effect, the last, uh, the least efficient one to determine the needs, the demand for the energy, that all the rest of that would uh, determine the price. What happens now, basically, the gas, uh, we, need the, we need very inefficient gas centrals to meet the demand for energy. And so they basically just work on the, on the margin. They don't really make a profit. They don't make a loss. Uh, but all the other energy firms, whether they be nuclear plants, whether they be um, wind turbines, they make huge, huge profits. So if you would add right. another windmill or another 100 windmills, it wouldn't make a big of difference because we would still need these very inefficient gas centrals. It's only if we really push them out of the market completely. That yeah, the so that's actually, a, actually more a political setting then. It's, yeah. a, it's a market setting. It's not a political yeah. setting. Yeah. It's uh, economic setting. It's an economic setting. Yeah. It's it's you either choose the the amount or you choose the price, and the other one is determined by the market. So we would actually have to push out gas completely, which is yeah. for now more or less impossible. Exactly, that's the point. So uh, as yeah. long as you need one gas central, uh, the prices will remain right. very high. Yeah, that's why I mentioned like the right policies and maybe yeah certainly requires cooperation on multiple fronts, right? Because the sci people from sci of science, we can't do everything because our knowledge of economics or politics is very limited, at least mine, it's quite limited, uh, just a working knowledge. We need policies and we need people, yeah, people pushing for these kind of things. And, and But if we have like the wind turbines on our roof or in our garden, then it will help because we use less energy in our house, so we pay less. Yeah, this is true. Yeah, that's that's the end goal, right? To make these uh, smaller turbines more mainstream, or make different kinds of turbines more mainstream, and and yeah, the accessibility is different for different designs of turbines, and that would probably help. Yeah, people get more interested and and yeah, and they're only the size of a chimney, so that's doable. Yeah, yeah, one or two meters. It's it's yeah, it's a small one. <laughs> yeah. So is the idea to, to become like the new solar panels that we also, you know, on the consumer level, on the individual level, we use them in our homes? Or is the focus of your research more to do it a big scale industrial? Like at the moment, uh, the focus is, uh, I think, being shifted from uh, smaller scale towards larger scale offshore wind turbines. Uh, my work does not concern uh, this at the moment, but uh, a general atmosphere is uh, is is to uh, make these a viable um, candidates for offshore wind uh, energy production. 
yeah, to uh, build large wind farms on the sea. Mm. Uh, but there are also people uh, focusing on smaller uh, wind turbines. So the small wind, uh, it comes under, yeah, the small, the smaller ones come under small wind research, and that's a little bit different than the ones uh, who work on offshore because their focuses are a bit different. <laughs> well, that also begs the question, where should we construct those? Because not everywhere you have a lot of winds. Yeah, you, you mentioned offshore. I, uh, yeah, offshore you have yeah. a lot of winds, but not every country has an offshore. <laughs> so yeah. where should you construct those ideally? This question really, it really depends on, on what kind of turbine you're using and what uh, scale of turbines you're using. And uh, yeah, they don't always have to be offshore. There are a lot of countries which have uh, plenty of wind resource on, on their land as well. Like, for example, uh, where I come from in India, uh, there are lots of hills and there are so many wind turbines on each of these hills. You you get confused, like, okay, where am I? Because there's like, the, there were hills a few years ago and there's just turbine. I'm happy about it, but some people probably won't be. Um, so it really depends on what kind of turbines you're talking about. Uh, and it, there are also resources uh, available from different uh, research uh, institutions online as to where it would be ideal to to put these turbines. Um, so it's a it's a very complicated question to answer, I think, <laughs> at least uh, for me. <laughs> and uh, Grishma, you're doing this research and you're in academia, but what do yeah. you like about academia or what don't you like about academia? Well, I'm still in the beginning of an academic career. Um, I'm in my PhD, so I probably have not seen the early phases of academia, as people say. It. But what I like about working in the research field is that I, I get to learn so many things. I like understanding how things work. I've, I've always been curious about, about like figuring out things and I think I like knowing how things work and that kind of pushes me to to learn how things work. So this, yeah, it's really, academia really facilitates this learning and I, and I like that. And I also realize that I like interacting with uh, students that I teach. They're, they're quite interesting conversations sometimes. And I also appreciate the fact that I, I get to work with a lot of smart people who know a lot about what they're doing. Um, it's very inspiring, uh, the, the amount of knowledge they have. Um, and that's one of the things that I like about academia. But I've also heard a lot about uh, how a lot of people dislike it because it's a rat race to publish and to get grants. And most of the times, yeah, you're and you're just doing like project management stuff uh, and, and trying to put out fires. So I have not experienced that personally, but I, I've heard people talk about it and I don't think I would like that. And I also uh, think that it's quite stressful to be an academic because you're yeah, always having to do things. Uh, you, it's always your responsibility. You you cannot just say, okay, you know what, I'm going to take a holiday and, and not think about your work. At least for me, I take a holiday yeah, and true. I'm still thinking about my work. And I... Yeah, I don't think that's a great way to to go through life because you've got to unplug and be able to have fun, enjoy your life a bit. Um, 
the stress I'm not a big fan of, but the learning I like. <laughs> and it also depends on your job. Like I work with plants. Now that's less of a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, but during my PhD, it's hard. Like in the growing season, I cannot take a holiday because my plants are growing. Yeah. I have to take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> they, and also plants don't know it's weekend it's it, you have to be there yeah um, <laughs> yeah i have some i have quite a few plants house plants so i understand so yeah you're still at the beginning of your career but do you think you want to stay in academia long term or do you think you might shift to um industry or something i might want to shift to uh, industry after my PhD or probably yeah after a while because I want to see real impact of what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. I, I I think I lack that kind of gratification in the work that I'm doing now because it will take a while for whatever I'm doing to have a real world impact and for me one of the biggest reasons that I moved towards renewable energy is is to do something to to make the world a better place you know to to, to yeah to to make to make some change positive change i know it's 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 really audacious to think what i'm doing is actually doing doing any considerable impact but i think every bit helps and i want to do something more direct no, I, I get that. And it's, I don't think it's audacious, actually. I, we have to do something we like. And I think most people want to make the world a better place. And like you said, every bit helps. So that's not audacious. Yeah. I think it's yeah. a good drive. I still want to be in science. But... Is that actually your major drive for doing science to, to help the world? Yeah, yeah. To, to be honest, I've always been interested in, in, in science because, yeah, I, uh, I like I like yeah, learning things, but the curiosity was one of the main reasons. But uh, the reason to 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 choose something like you no know, no renewable energy, yeah, it certainly is. I would really like to do something positive, you know, because we have to do something. We've we've done enough harm to the planet and 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 animals, so we gotta do something positive. <laughs> and individual responsibility matters, in my opinion, that we. Yeah, of course, everything needs help from policymakers and and corporations. But if yeah, individuals don't want to change, then nothing is going to change, right? <laughs> so that's a, a real passion of you. Is it something that you always had, like as a child? Do you did you always want to help people or or do science and and find out how things work? Yeah. So. My parents are both educators, uh, and when I was uh, a child, they would take me to their schools, and 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 um, I would just walk around the school looking into classes. Probably not the greatest thing to do as a child, but yeah, I I had fun. I would go uh, to these uh, like the labs to to watch the experiments uh, from students, and I would see all these preserved specimens uh, in the lab. <laughs> I once broke an octopus. Uh, the preserved octopus specimen because I thought it was like it was moving and then I got scared and then I knocked it. I spilled mercury once at my mother's school and the lab assistant and I had to like kind of like scoop it up because you can't touch it. You have to scoop it up with like sheets of paper and then we had to like clean the area. And um, and my dad taught biology and sometimes uh, chemistry as well. Uh, so he would uh, like 
do some cool experiments with me at home. Like, you know, uh, we, we once tried to build a, a, a solar uh, cell with uh, with an old transistor that we found in the, in the school. And uh, we also tried to build like a metal detector uh, and it didn't work because yeah, it was, yeah. It's the complicated thing, but we were trying to build it at home. And we, once we copper placed the, the keys to our house, and then we tried to uh, try to build like a drip irrigation system in like a tub uh, for plants. So this is how I used to spend my summer holidays. Uh, because yeah, my my parents were were very encouraging in terms of science. I think most Indian parents are very encouraging when their child wants to do something sciencey. <laughs> And my mom, she reads a lot and, and she also kind of uh, encouraged me to read and have, uh, I, I used to read uh, a lot of books related to scientists and, and when I was a child and, and all of these things kind of inspired me to want to yeah do something cool and I thought yeah science was cool you could do experiments then you could yeah build stuff and and that was fun. And when I was in school as well, I found some friends who were really interested in, in like physics and space exploration and, and science in general. And then we would like write things down uh, in a notebook that we that we learned. One like when I was in school, internet was not really like uh, it, it was not a thing, you know. Uh, at least where where I was from, I'm from a small town uh, in the southern part of India. And one guy had internet connection in his house and then he would like print out things and he would bring it to us and then we would sit and read. It was fun, <laughs> probably a bit too dorky. I never went to play outside, <laughs> but it was fun. And and, and I, I appreciate the fact that I had friends like these uh, in school. Uh, they're all they're all still doing yeah good things in life. One of them is doing a PhD in applied mathematics and the other one I think is is working for an yeah, engineering firm. But yeah, so it was fun and and I and I liked <laughs> doing these things. And uh, and later on I, I got interested in in airplanes because they were cool and, and I wanted to be a pilot first, but I realized okay maybe yeah Maybe learning how they work is probably more interesting. So I did. Uh, yeah, I chose. I chose the field. So is that how you got into fluid mechanics? Uh, actually, no. Uh, so I did aeronautical engineering during my bachelor's, and yeah. So one of the things I was really bad at uh, aeroelasticity and structural uh, engineering. Well, I shouldn't say really bad. I, they were not my favorite. Uh, and thermodynamics was always, yeah, I don't, I am not very good at thermodynamics. So the other interesting, yeah, it was aerodynamics. And then I, I really liked how, like, you know, lift is like magic. It's just like, okay, air flows on top, air flows on bottom. Okay, you get, you, you're lifting an entire aircraft, which is thousands of kilograms up in the air, which is pressure difference. That's, that's a ridiculous thing, right? So this is what made me feel like, shit, this is magic. I should learn more about this. I read the book that was prescribed and it was really interesting. So I decided, okay, you know what, maybe I will learn more about this. And uh, I, I, when I had to choose a major for my master's, I said, okay, I'm going to choose aerodynamics because I clearly really like it. 
And I also like the uh, doing CFD simulations in my bachelor's. They looked cool and colorful. And it was like, oh, shit, I'm waiting for my simulations to converge. Sounded much cooler than, I don't know, something like, oh, yeah, I'm doing some structural calculations. <laughs> to be honest, they also use uh, simulations. But that's why I decided to study aerodynamics. And here I am rambling on about it. <laughs> oh, no, but it's great. <laughs> and um, yeah, given that actually... You grew up with science. It has been a big part of your life. Do you know what you would be if you weren't doing science or if you weren't a scientist? <laughs> Maybe a pilot, I guess. I, I I don't know. I would like to think I would be a wildlife conservationist because that was one of my passions since I was a really small child. I, like, I love animals and uh, I would love to work with them and, and uh, help them. So... I would like to think I would be a wildlife conservationist, but it's uh, quite unlikely, I think. Uh, yeah, probably, uh, yeah, pilot. <laughs> yeah, okay, a pilot. So, Mirishma, um, we're getting to the end of this episode. Is there one thing you want our listeners to take home, something they should remember? I would say try to be curious and do what you can to make the world a better place for the going generations and for the animals around you and uh, support science and scientists and uh, ask your policymakers to do to make to take better decisions for the planet and for the people okay yeah no that's a great take-home message so this was the 10th episode of apple finch pudding i want to thank grishma gauda for the information and thomas leber for the questions Let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.